This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Thursday, June 10th, 2010. I'm Andrew Rinaldo at IATP in Minneapolis. In today's Radio Sustain, we discuss the potential for consumer food cooperatives in China. With Lindy Bannister from the Wedge Co-op in Minneapolis, then Karen Hansen Kuhn describes the highlights and shortfalls of new food security legislation currently before Congress. But first, author Marin McKenna discusses MRSA, the topic of her new book Superbug, and how reducing our reliance on antibiotics in agriculture could help stop resistant strains like MRSA, an epidemic that kills nearly 19,000 Americans per year. Okay, maybe you can start off by explaining exactly what is MRSA. So MRSA, or some people may know it as MRSA, is an acronym that has a ton of information packed into it. The the SA part is fairly easy. It stands for Staphylococcus aureus, or for most people, just Staph. Now, Staph is an incredibly common bacterium. It lives on our bodies, on our skin, and in our nostrils. Probably a third of us walk around all the time with staph without knowing it, and most of the time it doesn't make us sick. Be as long as it's on the outside of our bodies. When it causes trouble is if it gets from the outside of our bodies to the inside. If it gets in through our bloodstreams, through a cut or a scrape, it can cause bloodstream infections, infections of the valves of the heart. It it was back in the 19th century the leading cause of Infections and deaths on people in wars if they were shot on the battlefield. So staff has always caused serious illness. What's new now is what the MR stands for. The the R is for resistant. The M st- is the name of a drug, methicillin. Now it's kind of odd that we use that name because you can't even actually buy methicillin anymore. But methicillin was introduced in 1960. To address a problem of staph becoming resistant to the very first antibiotics, and pharmaceutical chemists thought it would last for a very long time that staph would never develop resistance, and they were wrong because staph developed resistance in about a year. But what's even more significant about methicillin, and the reason why we still use the name, is because methicillin's central chemical structure. Was copied for dozens of other antibiotics, antibiotics that we still use in medicine every day. That they're sort of me too drugs. And once staff saw that structure the first time, it was easily able to ve- develop resistance the second and third and the remaining dozen times. So you can see that inside that acronym MRSA or MRSA is a ton of information. And what it actually says is there is a bacterium. It's very common in our lives and in our bodies that has always caused serious illness, and now is indifferent to most of the antibiotics we use in medicine every day. So, how does it emerge in farm animals? Explain, explain the relationship, and then how it gets transferred into humans. So, I love this story because it's kind of a detective story, a, a disease detective story. And the way it starts is that 
there was a six-month-old girl in the Netherlands who went into the hospital for surgical repair of a heart defect, a birth defect. Now, unlike the United States, the Netherlands is a place that has excellent control of MRSA in its hospitals. The way they do that is they check everyone at the door to see if they're carrying MRSA on their skin and in their nostrils. And if they are, then they put them in isolation and they treat them until they're clear. And then they let them into the general hospital population. This girl was going in for surgery. They did that routine check, and to their surprise, they discovered she was carrying a MRSA strain. That was odd enough, but what was especially odd was it was a new strain that didn't look quite right on the tests. So since she was so young, she hadn't been obviously been moving around the world very much, they went looking in her environment for where it might be. They checked her parents. Her parents were carrying it. They checked her parents' friends. They were carrying it. They didn't really know what else to do, so they checked the parents and the parents' friends for what they did for a living, and they all turned out to be pig farmers. When they went back and took a second look at the, this new strain with that information, they realized that what was different about it was that this strain, in addition to the regular range of resistances that MRSA has always had, also was resistant to a new drug that they'd never seen before, and the drug it was resistant to was tetracycline, which in the Netherlands, is almost never given to people for staff, but is routinely given to pigs as their bread. So it was a clear signal that this strain of staff had wandered into pigs, had become resistant to agricultural antibiotics being given to the pigs to encourage their growth, and then had exited the pigs, was crossing back to humans, and was starting to make them sick. And from that first identification in that girl, there have now been very serious infections in people who are hospitalized, who have no connection whatsoever to farming. There have been large numbers of occupational infections in farm workers, and also lots of carriage in farm workers. And this bug has also been found in retail meat in a number of countries. And what's particularly important for us is that if you plot this out on a map, you can see it moving across the globe, starting in the Netherlands, expanding through the European Union, then moving to Canada with transnational trade in pigs and pig meat, and then finally ending up in the United States. It was found here in 2009 in Iowa. We only know of it in Iowa so far because Iowa is the only place that has looked. What's being done to prevent it, uh, particularly on the farm? Uh, well, unfortunately, almost nothing. Um, this particular strain of staff is called MRSA ST398, and that indicates its, its response to a certain identifying test. We don't test for MRSA ST398 in this country. In fact, generally speaking, we have really bad surveillance for staff overall. MRSA is not a reportable disease anywhere. Not hospital MRSA, not community MRSA, and certainly not agricultural MRSA. Add to that that we have very poor control or even surveillance in this country or even accountability for antibiotics as they are used in farming. We really don't have a good sense of how many antibiotics are used in farming every year, what they're used for, or what the end result of that is, which is inevitably antibiotic resistance, because anytime organisms encounter antibiotics, they start to develop resistance. That's a really significant concern when you think of the millions of farm animals that we have in this country, the very concentrated conditions that they live in that allow rapid bacterial interchange, and the enormous amounts, for instance, of manure that, that are held next to those confinement facilities that become kind of petri dishes for the further evolution of resistant strains of staff. So if you're a, a parent and you want to 
protect your family or not bring MRSA into your household by the type of food that you buy, uh, what kind of tips would you give parents? So the most important thing I think that, and the, the most important clue that we have is from that one group of brave researchers in Iowa who decided to take a look at this. And they really were brave because Iowa is the single largest pig growing state in the country. So for them to take on something that potentially cast a negative light on swine agriculture was really a significant thing to do. In their first set of research, what they did was just identify that 50% of pigs and about 45% of a very small number of farm workers who allowed themselves to be tested were all carrying this new strain. But then they did a second set of research. And what they found was that they compared traditional confinement agriculture that uses antibiotics in animals and organic agriculture. They looked for the strain in pigs in both of those. They found that bug, MRSA SD398, in the traditional confinement agriculture. They found none of it, zero, on the organic farms. So I think the easy conclusion for people who are really concerned about this, and I would argue that people should be concerned, is that as much as possible, vote with your dollars and support agriculture that uses no or minimal antibiotics. Sometimes animals are sick. They really do need to be treated. But what we should be moving toward if we're concerned about resistant bugs is support for agriculture that uses as few antibiotics as possible because that will slow down the development of resistant bugs and their movement to humans. What type of governmental or policy-related responses do you think governments around the world should be taking with regards to MRSA? The first thing we should do is we should look for it. We have almost no surveillance for MRSA in animals in this country. And the surveillance that we have for drug-resistant bugs in animals and the meat that comes from animals is pretty minimal. It's run by the federal government, but it only looks for a couple of organisms, and MRSA is not one of them. Until we have a really good count of how much this is showing up, it's hard to make an argument that we need more money from Congress for this. So the first thing is better numbers. The second is that we really need more accountability about what antibiotics are being used in agriculture and how much is being used. The best estimate we have at the moment, which is that 70% of the antibiotics used in the United States every year are used in agriculture, is something that's about a decade old at this point. And it's a decade old not because no one else has tried to update it, but because they can't get the data. So we need to count it. We need more accountability. And I would argue that we certainly need more testing. You know, For the amount of, of protein that we eat in this country, it is very reasonable to assume that a certain percentage of it is a kind of vector of drug-resistant organisms into our kitchens, into our home environments, and into our personal systems. And we need need to be identifying that and seeing which products, which animals, and which farms are the major bridge between agriculture and the human system. And then we can figure out exactly what we need to do to ameliorate that. Thanks very much. Learn more about Marin McKenna's new book at superbugthebook.com. Consumer grocery cooperatives offer something that no retail grocer can, complete control over our food. The Wedge Co-op in Minneapolis is a paradigm for a local food cooperative. Earlier this month, the Wedge's general manager, Lindy Bannister, accompanied IATP President Jim Harkness to China, where they participated in a workshop exploring consumer cooperatives 
and how the U.S. model may be adapted for use in China. Hi, we're here in Beijing, China, with Lindy Bannister, who's the general manager of the Wedge Co-op in Minneapolis. You've just been here uh, speaking at and participating in a, a workshop on grocery co-ops. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience? When I came, I started thinking that it was going to be just about grocery co-ops, and in the conference itself, we got to meet farmers who are passionate about their food and, and food safety and how they feel organic is the way to get safe food to the consumer. The same way we feel about it in the United States, there was a lot of linkage between the farmers and and the consumers, and they were very interested. In knowing how we do it in the United States, and fascinated by the part that you know that we know our farmers so well, and that we can tell their stories, and they seem very pleased with that, and that we would honor the farmers as much as we honor the farmers. And what's your assessment of sort of the state of play of the development of the co-op movement in China? It's very fascinating because when you look at the way the grocery co-op started 30 years ago in the United States, 30, 35 years ago, these people are just starting now in that same mode. And they're just as passionate as the people were that started the wedge co-op, and it's exciting to think that there's a whole new generation of people starting co-ops in a country halfway around the world from us today, just as passionate as how people were when they started the wedge. What kind of questions did people have for you about about the wedge and the way to run a co-op? Great questions. They they were, they had done their homework before they got there. They wanted to know how how the members got the co-op together. They were amazed that we didn't differ with with the farmers on price. That we we met with the farmers and saw their needs and set the price according to that. And、uh, they I think that they they had big hopes. Going forward, with where their co-ops can go, looking at where our co-op is today, as a very large co-op, they see that someday from now they can be just as successful. And I understand you also were able to visit some markets and farms. We went to the、uh, to the very first organic farmers market here.、Uh, it's It's very exciting. We talked to the people who had put it on, and it was very small to begin with. But、um, we saw products that were being sold that are much like the products that we sell in the United States. We we tasted some black pig. We had、uh, there was a booth with、um, organic milk, much the same as our organic valley、uh, products are.、Um, we had some cheese makers there. We brought cheese back to the apartment to eat in the morning. So it was、um, again the same kind of energy. Very exciting about. Starting something that's a movement that is all about getting good food to people that's safe for folks to eat, and that's why the wedge started 35 years ago. People wanting to do、uh, good food. They were nervous about the industrialization of, of food, and, and so they started the wedge co-op. And, and these people are doing the same thing. Now that you've come here, and we've had some Chinese uh, uh, activists and farmers over in Minnesota,、um, are you interested in maybe doing some more of this kind of exchange?、Uh, this is just this is a wonderful way to have people connect with people, and it really it brings out the fact that once you know people and you talk to people in other countries, you can't be mad at the country anymore for anything that country's doing because we now have connections. And I think if young people travel back and forth, and and leaders travel back and forth, the more we get to know people, the more we understand. Understand that all those struggles are the same. We have the same food safety issues. We have the same、uh, farmer issues, where our farmers are getting older, and we're trying to rejuvenate young farmers to grow good, healthy food for us.、Uh, the education of the consumer is an issue in both of our countries, and it just—it makes you realize that people are all the same.
Go to IATP.org for more, including blog entries and photos from the trip. New legislation focusing on food security has entered Congress. IATP's Karen Hansen Kuhn summarizes the new bills, which elements are encouraging, and which may need to change to ensure safe, sustainable agricultural development. So, Karen, why is Congress looking at food security right now? Well, there started to be a lot of debate during the food price crisis. There were a lot of hearings for a while, a lot of concern that agricultural development had been really neglected. Uh, for decades. So this is the first new legislation in a long time to focus on food security. What has U.S. policy focused on in the past in relation to food security? How is this different? Well, both U.S. foreign policy and, and what's been promoted at the multilateral development banks has really focused on agriculture internationally as a backward sector. So the, the focus was to move people out of farming and what farming existed, to have that be oriented mostly to export, telling people that they should buy food wherever it was cheapest. So what's different about this and one of the lessons of the food price crisis is that you, you need to strengthen local production. So a lot of this is about food production for local consumption. What's in this? Uh, well, there's two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate, but what are sort of the main parts in there that you think are a positive step forward? Both bills have really good language about emphasizing small-scale farmers, rural livelihoods, the role of women in farming, and that it's oriented towards food security and food production. What are some of the elements that give you pause that may be problematic? Well, the, the biggest flashpoint for controversy is language about the kind of technology, the kind of research that's promoted as part of the bill. Um, the Senate version of the, vil, the bill includes GM technology as one of the research objectives. The House version doesn't. Senator Luger, the main sponsor of the Senate version, says that this is one of many options that countries could explore. But I think what a lot of us are concerned about is that there's already a lot of pressure on developing countries to accept GM technology. So this would be one more push in that direction, rather than considering the full range of options, strengthening local agroecological methods or sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture. Um, and so we're concerned that it emphasizes that technology over others and that GM technology is unproven and really isn't the best technology to achieve food security. How does this uh, legislation being considered by Congress interact with the Obama administration's food security initiatives that are already sort of ongoing? Obama has committed $3.5 billion uh, at the G8 towards global food security. And so in this year's budget, he included $1.6 billion. So this gives direction to that spending, political support and guidance on the ways the money should be spent to support food security. Great. And what's the timeline you think that Congress will finalize this bill, or do you think they will actually finalize it? You know, it's hard to say. I think what will probably happen soon is that there, there is an effort to, to reconcile or to have similar language in the House and Senate bills. And so that's where we're seeing a lot of debate about this, this clause on the GM technology. I think that part will happen within the next month. What's not clear is if they'll consider the full bill before the August recess or if it gets considered in the fall and possibly folded into a full foreign aid rewrite. Great. Thanks very much.
Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sy. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, Ghost Town by The Specials, Believe the Hype by Lookbook, and Sunrise in California by Ouija Radio. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening.